Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17 through 22 tonight. Do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that is why I command you to do this. This is God's word. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in and look at it. Father, uh, thank you for tonight. Just the fun of being together and laughing and uh, enjoying community. Thank you for the gift of friends and the gift of fellowship even in this room. And I pray now as we turn our attention to your holy and sacred scripture, will you help us? Holy Spirit, I pray will you open our eyes and unclog our ears so that we may see clearly and hear the good news that you would have for us. Because you know that we have no hope apart from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons that I liked the movie Avatar, I know there are some that didn't, but the reason, one of the reasons I liked it is, is, is really the sheer creativity of it. I mean, if you, if you look at it, the, the imagination required to, to create this totally radically, weirdly different kind of world was just breathtaking to me. And so when, when Catherine and I walked out of the theater after we had watched it, the way that we were describing it was like, it was almost like seeing a, seeing a new color for the first time. You know, you don't, you don't even have categories to really even piece together what it was like. It was, it was that new, that, that crazy. This is, this is also the same reason why I like uh, the show Life or Planet Earth, anything on the Discovery Channel where you are taken into like the jungle or the, the, the deeps of the ocean where they're showing you these freakishly weird animals and plants that you've n- never seen before and you're just like, I don't even have categories for that. It's, it's, it's again like seeing a new color for the first time. Now why am I talking about all this? Because tonight's passage is kind of like seeing a new color for the first time. I mean, it, it's, it gives you a whole new way of existing, a whole new world that it invites you to live in. And it's, it's radical and crazy and mind-blowing. And, and it introduces us into this new way of living by, by directing us into three different new approaches. First, it directs us into a new way of doing. And then it directs us into a new way of thinking. And lastly, it directs us into a new way of being. So three angles to this passage, a new way of doing, a new way of thinking, a new way of being. So let's look first at the new way of doing. Right up front, when we were reading this, I hope that you saw that we are brought into the very center of God's heart. Because God says that he has a special place in his heart for certain types of people. Now, sure, God has love and kindness for all of humanity and for all of his creation. But there are certain, there are certain types of people that are at the very center of his heart. And who are these people? 
Well, maybe you heard it as I read it four different times, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. In case you missed it, verse 17, 19, 20, and 21, over and over and over. Who are these three types of people? Who are these people? These are the people who are living on the total edge of of near economic collapse. These are the poorest of the poor. These are the helpless and the homeless. And these are the people that God says are at the center of his heart. So let's just zero in and look at each of these. The alien. Some of your translations, if you're looking at it following along, may say sojourner, may say foreigner. These are non-ethnic local Israelites, people who have come from another country, another city, a foreign, a foreign nation, and are living now in the, in the world of Israel. They, they are foreigners, and as a result, they were typically homeless, without jobs, and didn't have a lot of opportunities that, that residents had. They were, they were jobless, homeless, unbelievably poor, and utterly dependent upon the generosity and the gifts of the locals. Those are the aliens. Who are the fatherless? Well, they didn't have orphanages back then. And so what happened, if there was a child that was born that uh, didn't have a father or didn't have a, you know, a family that was born out of wedlock or whatever, some family would take a child in and care for it. And invest in it. But once the child began to grow up and become more of a financial burden, the family would typically just sort of release it out into the street. So if, if you've been to a more economically destitute country and you go to the big cities and you, and you enter into the city, what do you see? A whole bunch of children begging for food, begging for money, trying to sell you stuff, eking out an existence. And this is the same basic story as what's going on in the world of Israel. There are just fatherless children all over the place. And then the last thing, the last person in this little triad is the widow. Now, obviously, there was no social security back then. There was no, there was no IRAs, no pension funds, no sort of financial security to pull from if you were older. And so if, if a woman lost her husband, did not have any family connections, this means that she had no way of making money, no, no income. She didn't have access to the land. She didn't have access to family connections. And so, and so she was just sort of thrown out and dependent on the generosity and the gifts of the locals. So here the passage zeroes in on these three people who are on the very edge of economic collapse, the poorest of the poor. And it informs us on what we are to do to these people and in light of these people's situation. So let me just read it. Verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. And it repeats this, this basic command three different times. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to read all of it, but, but you picked up on it. Here's basically the command. When the Israelites go into the land that God gives them, and they set up shop, and, and you know, farmers have their, have their land, and they are going out and harvesting and collecting all the crops on their property, it says, do not collect everything. Leave some of the stuff behind. So like when you, when you, in, when you have an olive tree, do not freak out on the branch and get every last olive. Intentionally purposefully leave some of the olives behind for those who need it, for these economically destitute poor people. Leave it for them. This is the call, this is the command to a new way of doing in this passage. So here it is. The call is to share intentionally, share radically and sacrificially your resources and your money, because that's what 
harvesting was with the people that need it. That's it. And so this is how this directs us into a new way of doing. Sacrificially, radically, give away our money to those in need. And so as Deuteronomy unfolds, and this is just one place of tons of places in this book that says if the, if the whole community actually does this and gets behind this, then the poor will be taken care of. They won't have to eke out an existence of asking for handouts. They will actually be taken care of. And if you look at it in Deuteronomy 15, it actually says there will be no poor in your community if you live like this. So here's the question. What will it take for the poverty in Boone and the poverty in the Appalachian region to be fixed? It would involve us doing something differently. And here it is. Radically and sacrificially give away your money. Sounds easy, right? I... um, one of my favorite authors is Eugene Peterson. He's, one, he's the guy that wrote the translation of the Bible, The Message, if you're, if you're familiar with that. And he told this story in one of his books, which I thought was really um, funny. But he, he's, he's, he's bird watching. He's, so he's looking at this nest with this mama bird taking care of her little chicks. And the mama bird is trying to teach these chicks how to fly. And so the way that she is sort of you know, pushing them on to maturity and kind of moving on out of the nest is she pushes them out of the nest onto the branch one by one, and so they're sort of single filing down the actual branch until the one at the very end basically gets pushed off. And as it's falling, then that's when it spreads its wings and obviously flies, takes off. But he says on this particular situation, as he's watching this scene, and they're going down the line, one of them, I guess, gets freaked out, grabs a hold of the branch with its talons, (laughs) and, and swings down while still holding on like a punching bag. And so the, the mama bird, you know, leans over this, this bird and begins pecking at its, at its talons so that it releases and falls, and it eventually does, and then, you know, begins flying like all the others before. And so here's the point. Birds have, birds have talons. Does that remind you of Napoleon Dynamite? It does me. Anyway, birds have talons. And can clutch and, to, and can grab onto things. They can do that. But they were designed to fly. That is what they were designed for. And giving is what we were designed for. That is intrinsic to our nature. And when we clutch and when we hoard and we gather onto our stuff, we are going against the grain of our design and we perpetuate the breakdown of community. One of the reasons why the poor remain poor, one of the reasons, is why it, it, it's simply because we like our stuff and our money more than we want to help them. If we're honest, that's why. But, but why? Why do we like to clutch and grab onto our money so tightly? Here's the reason why. It is because our hearts are desperately unsettled. And as a result, we look to money as the thing to provide us with security and to provide us with with comfort and to provide us with ease and to provide us with meaning and happiness. Money is the thing that does that to us. And so we are desperately unsettled and we are grabbing onto it. Desperate people cannot be generous people. That's just the nature of what it means to be desperate. You hang on to it. You hold on to it and clutch onto it for dear life. Now, I know some of you may be looking at me and saying, Matt, you are speaking to a room of college students. 
We don't have any money. This may be relevant to my life in like five years from now, but you know, right now I can barely pay the electric bill. And let me just tell you up front, I get that. I understand. But we have to be careful here at this point because greed always blinds us into thinking that we aren't greedy. That's just what greed does. When you think about somebody who's greedy, you, you picture in your mind this rich, miserly person who, who has a nice car and a huge house. Those are the people that are greedy. But you look at yourself and you say, well, this, this is at least some justification for why I don't have to give my money because, one, I don't have it. And you may be care- you have to be careful because greed can easily slip into your heart as well. And you think, okay, I mean, just think about it. Who in this room... You know, look into yourself really quickly and ask yourself this question. Do I think I'm greedy? My guess is nobody's going to say, yes, I'm really greedy. Because in your mind, you're thinking of that greedy person, the person who has a whole bunch of money. There is this amazing song by the Avett Brothers called Ill With Want. And it talks about this lie that says... I'm really discontent right now, but if I get more money, then I'll be content, and then I'll be able to be generous or or whatever. And so here's some of the lines from the song. It says this, I am sick with wanting, and it's evil how it's got me, and every day is worse than the one before. The more I have, the more I think I'm almost where I need to be. If only I could get a little more. And the chorus goes like this, something has me. Oh, something has me. (laughs) Acting like someone I don't want to be. Something has me acting like someone I know isn't me. Ill with want. And poisoned by this ugly greed. Poisoned by ugly greed. Thinking, I don't have enough right now, but if I just get a little more, then I'll be settled. And that is what greed does. That is what the lie is. And so I know, I know you think... I don't have the kind of resources that that rich person has. But listen, you and I can be just as greedy and just as clutchy with our stuff, even though we don't have the kind of resources that that person may have. And so we have to be careful here that we don't buy into the lie that says, five years from now, when I get money, then I'll be settled and then be able to give it away. Because in five years from now, you'll be thinking the same thing. The call to generosity is to give away your resources now even as a poor and broke college student. That's the call. And so you may know somebody who is in financial trouble, and you can sacrificially and radically give away your resources to help them, to pay their gas bill, to, to help, um, help out with their car, or, or give them any sort of financial help that they may need. You can do that. You can buy somebody a meal. You can buy somebody a cup of coffee and sit down and get to know them. You can practice giving regularly at church. You can start supporting a missionary. Some of our students are taking mission trips this summer. You can actually give them money to go help them do that. You can give your money to homeless shelters here in Boone and get behind that financially. Even though you may be living off of your parents' money, you you can still experience the freedom and the joy of giving away that which has been given to you. You really can do that. Transition into reading time. David Sedaris, David Sedaris, I don't know how you pronounce his name, he wrote this amazingly funny essay 
called Santaland Diaries. And it talks about how one winter he was working as an elf in like the Macy's department store, you know, where they have, you know, Santa sets up shop and all the kids and their families come through to take pictures. And he's one of the grown adult men elves kind of having all these different jobs. (laughs) And here is, here's one of the little excerpts from this. This afternoon, I worked as an exit elf, meaning that I told people in a loud voice, this way out of Santa land. A woman was standing at one of the cash registers paying for her idea of a picture when her son lay beneath her, kicking and heaving, having a tantrum. And the woman said, Riley, if you don't start behaving yourself, Santa's not going to bring you any of those toys you asked for. And the child said, he is too going to bring me toys, liar, he already told me. And the woman grabbed my arm and said, you, there, elf, tell Riley here that if he doesn't start behaving immediately, then Santa's going to change his mind and bring him coal for Christmas. And I said that Santa no longer traffics in coal. Instead, if you're bad, he comes to your house and steals things. (laughs) I told Riley that if he didn't behave himself, Santa was going to take away his TV and all his electrical appliances and leave him in the dark. All your appliances, including the refrigerator, your food is going to spoil and smell bad and you're going to be so cold and dark where you are. Man, Riley, if you are, you are ever going to suffer. You're going to wish you never heard the name Santa. <laughs> and the woman got a worried look on her face and said, okay, that's enough. And I said, he's going to take your car and your furniture and all the towels and blankets and leave you with nothing. And the mother said, no, really, that's enough. (laughs) As as funny as that is, Santa, the one who is known for being generous, giving away all kinds of stuff, presents, toys, whatever, here we have a picture of him start stealing, clutching, taking stuff back. And as funny and as ridiculous as that is, that is a sad picture of us. Because we were designed to be generous. And rather, we clutch and we hoard and we take. It's a ridiculous picture, but it's us. And the passage invites us into a new way of doing. But secondly, the passage invites us into a new way of thinking. And this was the point of all of my studies and everything in the book of Deuteronomy that totally exploded my brain. And here it is. When you work a job, and you get your paycheck after the government takes the taxes out, how how much of that paycheck do you think is rightfully yours? What percentage would you say? And I think most of us in the room would probably say 100%. That's what I work for. That's my money. Here's where we have to start thinking differently. Let me read verse 19 again. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. And here's what this is saying. The poor have a right to your income. That's the point of what it's saying. If you think about it in this terms, a a farmer goes out to collect his, his crop. He gets his paycheck, let's say on his first run out while he's harvesting, he gets 95% of his field's crops that, that have been produced. It says that remaining 5% doesn't belong to you. If you say that everything, 100% of the field is mine, the Bible says that is actually disobeying God and considered theft, meaning that the poor have more of a right to some of your income than you do. 
you see how this totally confronts and challenges the way that we think about our stuff and think about our money and think about what it is that we have earned because part of your paycheck actually belongs to someone else. They have more of a right to it than you do. That's what this is saying. As one commentary put it, the provisions of verses 19 through 21 are rights, not handouts. This isn't them just sort of handing stuff out to people. They have a right to it. In fact, the actual Hebrew, although in this translation that you're looking at says, um, where is it? Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. In the actual language, it says, Literally, to the alien it shall be. This is language of ownership, meaning that this is theirs. They have a right to it. They have more of a right to it than you do. Now, I know this is unbelievably hard to even comprehend because this goes against the grain of everything that we think in this country. And I haven't fully worked out what all of this means in my own mind yet either. And, and I know that this is, this is controversial. This is a national political conversation that we are having. What do we do about distributing wealth to those in need? I'm fully aware of that. And I don't know how all this works out politically, and right now that's not my point, and so we're not going to talk about it right here. But let's start the conversation. Let's talk about it in Crossroads. Let's hang out at Espresso and begin the conversation, and y'all can begin the conversation because we need to have this conversation. And we need to have this conversation with biblical wisdom to think about our stuff and to think about our money and to think about our rights to it differently. But what I want you to see tonight is how to begin to think biblically. Because as far as I can tell, this is what it means to think biblically. That part of your income cannot be called your income. And here's the reason why I think this is the case. Because, if you think about it, the Israelites came into the promised land. They were given this land by God. They didn't work and earn and and get this land. It's all on loan to them from God. So in a certain sense, they should have known in the first place, none of this is mine to begin with. It's all borrowed by God in the first place. So every single penny that I earn, every percentage of my income can't really be strictly called mine. It's all God's. That's why I think this is the case. And so the Bible challenges the way that we think here, especially as Western Americans, because we are drinking deeply of the well of this thing called individualism, where it says, hey, I worked for my, for my stuff. I got out there and earned it. Why do I have to just give my stuff away to somebody who didn't work and didn't earn it? If they, want, if they want money, they can go out and earn it and work for it just like I did. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I am who I am because of the choices that I made. Why can't they go out and do it too, Right? And let me just say, that whole conceptual framework is deeply, overly simplistic, and in my opinionated, ignorant. And I don't mean that pejoratively, because that is the language of my heart half the time of my life as well. Is if somebody wants something, they need to work for it, because I work for my stuff. But think about it. I mean, think about it. Just look at me. I am a male, white, born to a middle, upper-class family in Dallas, Texas. Already from the gate, before I made any choices, before I made any decisions, I had more opportunities just because of where I was born into than the person who was born on the side of the mountain to an illiterate, poor family in the, you know, in, in the Appalachian Mountains on a, in a shack. By the time he becomes a teenager, he will, he will be illiterate and have no opportunities to pull himself out where by the time I was a teenager, I was on my way to college. So we can't say every single thing that defines you is because of the choices that you made and the way that you worked hard. Yeah, you should work hard, absolutely. And we can nuance this and disclaim this all night, and I'm not going to. 
But we can't say, I'm not going to give to these people because they, 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 they're not just pulling themselves out by their bootstraps and working hard for it like I am. We can't think like that anymore. But how do we think about it? Well, it's, it's hard. It's extremely complicated. Who do, you give to, who do you give your money to? How much do you give? When do you give? I don't know. Let's talk about it. Let's work it all out. But I, I just want you to see in a very general and a broad sense that the Bible directs us to think in a new way here about our money. And as far as I can tell, that's, what it means is that part of your paycheck, part of your income, belongs to the poor. The Bible directs us into a new way of doing, and it directs us into a new way of thinking. So here's the last question. How in the world do we become people that are like this? How do we give our money away like this, and how do we think about our money like this? Well, I think typically there's two different approaches that try to motivate you to give away your money. There's a secular way, which says, hey, you have so much, they have so little, give them some money, help them out, right? They flash, you know, slides of these really pathetic children in front of you and say, how can you, you know, sit on all of your money when these people are hungry? That's the secular way. The religious way says, hey, you want to be a good person? Give your money away. This is, this is what it means to be a good, moral, upstanding, religious citizen is to give your money away. And so I want you to see both of these strategies prey on your, uh, on your guilt. And they cultivate pride, by the way, but that's a separate sermon. But they, they prey on your guilt, and I want you to see guilt can't take you very far. And you know this. Because picture this scenario. You're driving home for you know, a break or whatever. You're going down the highway, and you, you, know, you turn the corner and you see the cop perched behind the tree. What do you do? Well, you freak out and your heart races and you start slowing down, right? <laughs> the fear of getting caught, which is a byproduct of guilt, is motivating you to actually obey the law and do what you should have been doing in the first place, right? Guilt is driving you to do what is right. So you turn the corner, look in your rearview mirror, notice that the cop is not following you. You feel safe. Heart slowly starts kind of winding down. And then before you know it, you're speeding again, right? (laughs) Guilt is not even strong enough to keep you to obeying speeding laws. How in the world do you think guilt is going to be strong enough to motivate you to do this? It can't. It it is not strong enough to overcome the the desperate unsettledness in your heart. And so what's the way forward? What's the motivation? We need a whole new way of being. And here's how we get it. Let me read verse 18. Moses says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. And that, that is why I command you to do this. Moses is asking the people to remember what it was like when they were a slave in Egypt and when God uh, liberated them. This is the reason why they are to behave differently and to think differently. This is the reason why, but why is this the reason? Okay, well, let's just work through the logic of it. Moses says, remember... That you were a slave. You were where they are. You see the poor? You were there. You were marginalized. You were mistreated. You were oppressed. You had your rights taken away from you. You were there. So so, um, he, he is inviting Israel to identify with the poor. Not in the sense of this pretentious way, like I'm going to enter into their poverty, but to say, no, actually remember, you were where they are. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, and God liberated you. Out of God's grace, he liberated you. He didn't, you didn't buy your way out of slavery. You didn't do a whole bunch of good works. And so God was really impressed with you and said, oh, okay, I'm going I'm to break these people out of slavery. No, it was all by God's grace that God intervened, 
liberated his people from oppression, adopted them as his children and as his people, and gave them this generous land to call home. Every bit of it was by grace. And so what Moses is doing is is reinforcing their identity as those who have experienced God's grace. And that is the motive. And the point is this. You will never radically and sacrificially give away your money or think in the way that this passage directs us to think unless you have first had an experience of God's grace. The motive behind the call to live this way and to think this way is just as important as the call to live and to think this way. You see that, right? Because you could go out there and give away all of your money and and live and, and, and behave and think this way and just modify your behavior, and yet your very heart is still riddled with this desperate unsettledness where you are prideful and you are still greedy and you look down upon the people that you are helping. You could do it, and on the outside you could look like you're fulfilling this passage. As the Bible unfolds, God's grace and, and God's people and their experience of God's grace gets deeper and deeper. And so you get to this really interesting passage in 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul, who's an apostle, is writing to the church of Corinth and in, inviting them to give money to this other church that is, that is in need. And here's what he says. It's really fascinating. He says in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 8, I am not commanding you, meaning I'm not going to order you to do this. I'm not going to just give you another rule to do. And here says why. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not commanding you because you know God's grace. And then he says this. Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The motive that Paul is giving here is another experience of God's grace. And he says, here is the gospel the most clearest, deepest, widest expression and demonstration of God's grace. He says, look at Jesus. Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, in heaven and has been in heaven from all eternity, says, I have infinite wealth at my fingertips. And if I clutch onto it, if I stay up here and hang onto it, then we all die spiritually poor. We are the spiritually bankrupt, the spiritual alien, the spiritual fatherless, the spiritual widow. And if Jesus clutched and hang on, hang on to his money, then we would all die poor. And so the choice for Jesus was hang on to his money and we die poor or Jesus dies poor and we become rich. That was the choice. And so what did Jesus do? He released all of his riches and came down to earth as a homeless and hungry peasant. In fact, as he's walking around at one point in his ministry, some dude comes up and is like, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, I'm homeless. You sure you want to sleep in a cardboard box tonight? And as he dies on the cross, the last possession that he owns, his last set of clothing is being gambled away by the guards. He dies completely possessionless. Why? Why did he give up his treasure? He did it to make you his treasure. That's what he did. And when you see the gospel of grace held out for you like this, then Jesus becomes your treasure. 
When you experience the grace of the gospel, he becomes your treasure. And now, this is what totally radically changes the way that you think and the way that you act. Because if Jesus is your savior, and if Jesus is your treasure, then money just becomes money again. Money doesn't become your savior anymore. It's not your treasure anymore. And when it gets demoted like that, you are free to give it away. You are free to give it away. It is no longer your security. It is no longer your happiness. It is no longer the thing that that provides you with the meaning of your life because you have Jesus and he fulfills all that. And money is just money. You can give it away even when it is sacrificially costly to you because you have him who sacrificed everything for you. And so the question is, the primary question is not, are you giving away your money? The question is, do you believe the gospel? And I'm talking to Christians and non-Christians. Christians, the gospel is not just for the lost. Do you believe it? Because to the extent that you believe it, to the extent that you are experiencing God's grace, that's to the extent that you will give away your money. And so the question is, do you believe it yourself? Have you tasted God's generosity towards you? Because until you have, then you won't be generous. And you'll clutch and you'll hang on to your money. I know I've read a lot of stuff tonight, and I've got to read one last thing as we close out. This is a little excerpt from uh, the book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. If you haven't read it, you have to read it. I will hunt you down and force you to read it. Here's what he says at one point in this book. He says, The solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ and the gospel, how he poured out his wealth for you. Now you don't have to worry about money because the cross proves God's care for you and gives you the security. Now you don't have to envy anyone else's money. Jesus' love and salvation confers on you a remarkable status, one that money cannot give you. Money cannot save you from tragedy or give you control in a chaotic world. Only God can do that. And here's the last sentence I want to highlight. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understanding, our identity, and our view of the world. To put it in my language tonight, it gives you a whole new being, a whole new way of being. Remember that you were slaves and God liberated you from Egypt. That is the motive. Experiencing God's grace totally restructures your very existence and gives you a new being, a new identity, a new way of looking at your money. So the question that I want to leave with you tonight is this. Do you believe the gospel? Consider it an invitation to come to Jesus by faith. Let me pray for us. Father, you who were rich, became poor so that through your poverty we might become rich. I pray that the experience of your generosity would make us people that are generous and transform us from the inside out. We need your grace, and you know that we do not deserve your favor, but because of your kindness, you have given us Jesus. I pray, Father, will that melt away our hearts, will that melt our hearts and release our white-knuckled clutching to our money that we would be able to give it away and care for the poor because it is their right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.